for me, as I realized and have, you know, continue to realize that God's love permeates all things. And then even when I can't particularly feel it in a palpable way, or I can't see it, to trust that it is there, it, it makes life worth living. And as I am postured ready for moments when that love becomes ever more real to me, that it makes it more possible that I'm going to recognize it when there's a moment for clarity around it. That was Dr. Angela Gurel, and this is the Things Above podcast. Today's guest for a Things Above conversation is Dr. Angela Gurel. Dr. Angela Williams Gurel is the Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Baylor, at the George W. Truett Theological Seminary, to be exact. Prior to joining the faculty at Baylor, she was an Associate Research Scholar at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, working on the Theology of Joy and the Good Life Project, and a lecturer in Divinity and Humanities at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, my old stomping ground. She's an ordained pastor with 14 years of ministry experience. Dr. Grell is passionate about finding issues that matter to people and shining the light of the gospel on them. She's the author of a couple of books. First, Always On, Practicing Faith in a New Media Landscape, a huge issue for us today, and a new book that we're going to talk about, The Gravity of Joy, a story of, of being lost and found. She regularly consults, speaks, teaches, leads workshops on all the areas that she is uh, an expert in, and there are so many, but I'll stop talking about you. Angela, welcome to the Things Above podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, it's wonderful. We have become friends in the last couple of months, mm-hmm. and that is great. And I am just so glad that that uh, we got connected. And I read your book, The Gravity of Joy, and I loved it. I've actually talked about it on this podcast. I've quoted from the book, so listeners may uh, connect that. Um, but I, I want to talk about that book, and I'm going to ask you this question. I ask every author who's on the podcast who's written a book the same question, and that is, Why did you write this book? That's a wonderful question to ask authors. And for me, I wanted, I wrote this book for a few different reasons. One, I really wanted people who had experienced similar suffering as my family has experienced, as I have experienced, as the women in prison that I write about experienced. I wanted people to feel less alone in their suffering. Two, I wanted people to feel like, joy could find them in the midst of their suffering. I wanted them to realize that they would not be betraying grief in if they let joy in, Mm. that they would not be betraying their, their grief if they let joy in. Yeah. And, and third, I wanted to draw attention to America's crises of despair. I think that the suicide rates, addiction rates and mass incarceration rates in our country point to a larger um, theme of despair that we need to attend to. Wow. Well, I can say this as a reader, your book did all those things for me. Mm. Um, I I have had seasons of real grief and loss in my own life. And um, gosh, it it really, it spoke to me on so many levels. So the, the book itself uh, you you talk about suffering some losses all in a short period of time. Talk a little bit about about that because that that happened to you pretty quickly. Yes, I was hired in March of 2016, as you stated in my bio, to be a researcher and lecturer at Yale, the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University, and to teach undergraduates and master's students there. And truly, it was a dream job post PhD. It was sort of a wow moment in March 2016 of I get to travel to Connecticut and live there and work at Yale University and teach a class called Life Worth Living and study and write about joy. I don't know if there's a better sort of uh, job description that I could have imagined for myself after finishing my PhD work at Fuller Seminary. And so I was really excited. And for eight months, I read everything that I could get my hands on about joy And then eight months into the project, I got a phone call one week before Christmas that radically shook my faith. And that was 
um, a phone call about how one of my family members had died by suicide at 30 years old. And the next week after that was, until that point, the most painful week of my life. There were so many hard things that our family went through during that week. And I was very close to, I was at like all of the hard things. Um, And then I remember getting back to Yale and just thinking, I don't know how this work is going, you know, how I'm going to continue to do this work in a meaningful way in light of what just happened. It's going to take our family a long time to recover. And then two weeks later, my nephew died suddenly at 22 of cardiac arrest. He had a heart condition that we didn't know about and went to his funeral, uh, read his obituary at his funeral, wept with my family for more days and got back to New Haven on a Sunday night. Um, His funeral was on a Saturday. And two days later, I received word that my dad was in the ER fighting for his life. And two days after that, I spent the last five hours of my dad's life with him. After about 12 years of opioid use, um, his liver and kidneys finally shut down. And so, yeah, I lost three family members in really tragic ways, each one in their own way, you know, suicide, senseless death of a young person and opioid use in four weeks. And I spoke at all of their funerals (laughs) and my job was to study joy. Mm. The irony, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you're there to, to be talking about a life worth living and about joy and you hit as hard as you can get hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, that is so intense. And I've talked on this podcast and most listeners, and folks who've read my books know I, I have also had those seasons of loss in, in the fall of 97. My good friend Rich Mullins died in a, in a car accident. And six months later, our daughter died um, after two years. She was born with a chromosomal disorder and she died. And then a year after that, my mom died. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't as close as yours. But Angela, I do. Um, I understand to an extent what it's like to walk through that valley and think, wow, God, where are you? Because yes. I'm one of your people, like I'm on your team. And uh, th- th- these losses just are so incredible. Um, and your book does such an incredible job of, of talking about how you were able to walk through this with, you know, real honesty. It's raw. I love that the book doesn't hold back. Uh, you, you speak how you feel. And um, man, it, it, was, it was just it was such a, a great read for me uh, because I think, and tell me what you think about this, but I, I, I think grief doesn't ever end. Like you don't, it doesn't fully go away. And I, I've quoted Bonhoeffer on this podcast who said, we shouldn't even pray for, the, for that to go away because that's the way we stay connected. Um, what's your sense of the longer term? Because now you're a few years out from that. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on how, because there's that cliche, time heals all wounds. And I think, well, I don't know that that heals all wounds changes perspective maybe, but what are your thoughts on that? Yes. I think that I like the idea of like it changes perspective because I'm with you. I don't know that you ever truly heal from loss like you and I have experienced. Um, and like many listeners have likely experienced, I don't know that you ever say, Oh, I'm, I'm good with what happened. <laughs> with right. me, I think healing means like I'm fine now. And I don't know that, you know, five and a half years later, I certainly can't say I'm just like fine with those four Mm. weeks and what happened and what contributed to each of those tragic deaths too. Like, I think for me that I'm able to find meaning in them in ways that I had, I mean, I had to work really hard for. Um, I I had to make meaning in the sense of like, I had to say like for myself, what I was able to do is to say, okay, I've experienced these things. How do I relate better, differently to people who have experienced similar things? Mm -hmm. How do I practice the presence of Jesus with people in a way that is authentic and genuine and helpful? (laughs) Um, you know, and like, those are ways that I made meaning of this. Like, how do I talk about these things as a way of participating in education and prevention around suicidal thinking, addiction, um, you know, thoughts of despair. 
And like, mm-hmm. so how do I help the sort of like the greater, our greater society to look at these things and say, these are things we must attend to and we must care about, like as a way of trying to prevent other people from experiencing similar pain, you know? Yeah. So I think that's what we can do. We can take what's happened to us and we can try to do something. We can respond meaningfully to what has happened to us. We can, in the words of my friend and colleague at Yale, Willie Jennings, we can like make our pain productive. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, But mm -hmm. he says like without justifying or glorifying suffering, which I think is really important. Like we're not saying this is good that this happened to me. We're not saying, oh, this is such an incredible thing. Um, This happened to me for this reason. We're saying, okay, this happened. What's my work to do now that this has happened? Like for me, you know, and what my, what is mine to do can shift over time. And I think that's how, you know, and then also I think grief comes in waves. And so at times it might feel heavier and other times it might feel lighter to carry my sister, Steph, who lost her son. She describes grief as a backpack and she's like, I'm always wearing it, but like some days it feels lighter than others. Mm. So I think we can trust in that, that like, it doesn't always feel the same. Um, Sometime, you know, some days we look back at what has happened and we're able to reflect more on the beauty and goodness that these people brought to our lives. And that brings us more joy than like sadness related to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Things like that. But I don't think, yeah. So I think it changes and shifts, but it doesn't ever go away. Yeah. And I think we need to hear that word because. Some people feel guilty, like, oh, I'm still I'm still feeling grief and, and sadness a year, two years, three years later. And I, you know, Bonhoeffer basically said, don't ever pray that that goes away. That's how we stay connected to that person in some ways. And uh, I think that's so helpful. Uh, right. Well, yeah. I- and also, I think for many of us, like to talk about our loved ones and to continue to grieve them, like to lament that they're gone when they've died is to keep them alive. Mm-hmm. And that's really it important, does. you know? We oh, absolutely. Know, like to talk about them is to keep them alive in our hearts, in our minds, in the life of the world. And so giving each other permission and asking questions about what people were like and what they mean to us and how does it, you know, sit with you now and why, like, these are important things that help us to keep, you know, our ancestors, the saints before us alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, next year will be the 25th anniversary of, of Rich Mullins passing. I don't know if you knew who he was, Angela, but he was a Christian singer songwriter. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we're, we thought, what should we do something next year? And we all decided, yeah, we don't want to do something on the anniversary of his death because that's never a good day for us, but we're going to have a celebration here at Friends University on the day on his birthday. And, uh, we're calling the celebration, uh, rich as best as we can re- remember him because he had an album called the world as best as I can remember it. So we're going to have a celebration in October of 2022, uh, which is his birthday, October 21st. And and exactly what you said, we want to gather together and we're going to sing songs he wrote and we're going to talk about his life hmm. and honor that because, well, you know, as Christians, I believe he's, he is in glory and, and we'll see him again. But for now, we remember him and we we honor that legacy. And and it's a, it's a beautiful thing when you can find a way uh, a way to do that, which is a, a lovely thing. But I'm going to shift away from lovely things to, to the unlovely <laughs> and then move to something lovely because one of my favorite parts of the book um, is when you talk about the Easter service. But you you talk about how um, there was an Easter service, and I don't think it was too much. Maybe it was the first Easter after your dad had passed. Is that That's right? Right, yeah. Yeah, and you you got an, uh, an invitation to to pray before the service. You thought it was going to be that you were going to maybe pray for some people. Um, you didn't think you were going to be praying for the service itself, but I love when you said, um, and I'll quote from the book, um, I didn't think I had anything to say to God and I didn't want to hear anyone else talk to God either for fear that they would say ridiculous things about God that I was not buying into at that point. If someone prayed something like, thank you, God, that you don't give us more than we can handle. I knew I would leave, I would need to leave and Easter would be ruined more than it already was. And I, I, I'm sorry to be laughing at that, but as one who's walked through those, I know that feeling because, and I've said this on this podcast, Christians are pretty, really good at saying dumb things. Um, And at one point I actually, I had a running list of things that well-meaning Christians would say to me 
during my seasons of loss. Um, so I, I mean, I absolutely resonate with, with that because you were just thinking, oh, I don't want, I can't endure if people come say these glib things. What, what, what is that about? What is it about that we as Christians, we want to go rescue people in their grief? I, I think as human beings, and perhaps particularly as Christians, we want to fix things. Right. Because it's uncomfortable to sit in the unknown, in disbelief, in doubt, in mystery, in confusion for most of us. You know, so we just, we, we try as quickly as possible to get from uncomfortable to comfortable. And for us, it means, okay, I can't sit with you in this confusion and doubt and sadness. So I'm going to tell you how everything is going to be fine. Because I can't handle how sad, how confusing, how dark, how doubtful, you know, how filled with doubt this moment is. I think, I mean, I think that's a human sort of response, but also, and then I think for many of us, we find so much hope in the Bible and in the Christian story and Christian history that we want to jump to the hope. And so I feel like it comes from an honest, like human place. And it comes from a good place at the end of the day, like at the very root of it, it's, I want to give you hope. Unfortunately, though, this desire to give hope and to give it quickly and to make the jump ends up with like us giving very cliche, trivial responses to profound grief. Yeah. And also also misguided ones. I mean, the thing is, is that also, Jim, I mean, I feel like what's what we have to just name here is that there's a lot of things that are said in the name of Jesus and and as if they're like in the Bible that are not like, and this slogan of like, God doesn't give us anything more than we can handle is not like a biblical text, but people say it as if it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that creates that more guilt because we get to something, well, I can't handle this. It's like, well, then clearly it's your fault because God would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people said so. I mean, after my mom died, I remember a woman in my church, she just came up and says, oh, I guess you're nobody's little boy anymore. Oh, went, wow. What? Wow. <laughs> what? And, then, and, then, and one woman came to our house after my dad died. And so I'd lost my other parent. And she goes, well, I guess you're an orphan now. And I went, are you helping me? Or is, is that supposed to be? I, I have no idea what, why you just said those words, but I really wish you had not said anything, mm-hmm. you know? Um, mm-hmm. But so I, so when I, that story, when I was reading about your feeling going, man, I can't handle this if they're going to say something. But then here's where the story takes a big turn. Um, you, you went to the basement and you, you were brave, Angela, you were there and you, you, <laughs> you, you took it. Uh, and, and then everybody was started praying and it got to your, your friend, John prayed and he started praying about who God is. And then you write, honestly, I got more nervous, but I listened attentively. And then he prayed he said, God, your love is relentless. And then you write the word echoed in my heart, not just for the following minutes, but throughout the entire Easter service. And then for hours, days, and weeks relentless. But then you say this, you were able to somehow experience the love of God and the void of God. And those were somehow held together in John's words. And you said, I, in that very moment, I noticed God's presence for the first time since my dad had died. Unpack that a little bit. What happened in that church basement? Yeah. I wonder if to unpack it is similar to what I I say in, in chapter four, I think that the moment I try to describe joy, I diminish it. And like the same as the traces for grief. I feel like the moment I try to unpack this, that I actually um, may, may diminish what happened, but I will, yeah. I will try, you know, because I don't know that words quite do it justice. I think what I experienced in that basement was paradox. Mm. And in doing so, I was able to just that, that experience, that one moment somehow helped me to not only sense God's presence, but to lean in to awe and into mystery and to say, 
making sense of the silence of God in the previous months, like, and trying to make sense of how God seemed to disappear um, is not working for me anymore. Like I, I can't make sense of it, but somehow God has felt absent, but been present like this entire time. And there's this, I, I think it parallels well with like Howard Thurman has in his book, Meditations of the Heart, which I highly recommend to anyone who's looking for an amazing devotional, like little short devotional meditations to start your day that are just incredible. But he has one where he talks about him like seeking God, like God, you know, I'm seeking after you. I'm seeking after your love. I'm trying to find you all the while. Like he realizes one day, like God was seeking me. Mm. And I think that that's what happened in that moment that suddenly I had this clarity that like, this God that I thought was absent or that had felt absent and certainly had that had been silenced in my life was not being silent on purpose, but was in the silence, like speaking to me, if that makes sense. So it's like, I think yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think it's that, that it was that actually God, God's love, God's relentless love was meeting me in the silence and I didn't realize it because, you know, it was later on in the book. I talk about how Suzanne, my spiritual director says that like, like silence is the language of God. Yeah. And so that's what I realized is that, Oh, God's relentless love has been seeking me. And it's in the silence that God has been speaking to like that. This love has been speaking to me. I just didn't realize it until this moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I was really moved by your your concluding remarks, which were kind of a summation of what you said that God had been teaching you. You write, I was not forgotten. I was not unseen. God had not abandoned me. God's primary response to suffering is withness and witness, the visible manifestation of God's presence in the midst of suffering. And and those that really I stopped when I was reading that withness and witness. And um, I just think that's so profound. Uh, say more about that, the withness and the witness in the midst of that God's the visible manifestation of God's presence in the midst of it. Yes. Um, I, I think that it's important for us to, to realize that when, well, at least when I look at the, the biblical account, what I see in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures into the new Testament is a God that recognizes pain and laments a God like, and so in that way that a God that is wit a witness to pain. I mean, what we see again and again and again is not a God that minimizes pain, not a God that neglects pain, you know, a God who is a witness who sees the pain of people and recognizes it as such. And for us, I think that's a powerful example of what we can be and what we can do. There's something very powerful about simply saying to someone, what you have gone through is horrible. <laughs> what you yeah. have experienced is a tragedy. What you are going through is deeply painful. I see that you are suffering. I recognize it, you know, because for so many of us, I think there's just something about being seen that's very, very helpful. And we realize, oh, I'm like, I actually, what I'm going through is very hard. And then with this, God, what we see constantly throughout the Bible is that God is with God's people as they're, they're suffering. Uh, James Cohn says in God of the Oppressed, the Bible is not so much about why people suffering, suffer, but what God in Christ or through Christ has done about suffering. Mm. And what God has done about suffering in one instance is that God has chosen to be with us in suffering. Jesus took on suffering. Jesus is a healer and a helper of the wounded who enters into suffering constantly throughout his life and ministry. And so for me, I was like, okay, when I think about where God is in the midst of suffering, like this is something that I can live with. God witnesses yeah. it and God is with us in it. And I can allow, and I allowed that to be enough for me. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, 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 on this podcast, I recounted uh, your story about your friend, Molly 
who came to your house after your loss, not an attempt to try to fix you guys or whatever, but just to be with you and to listen. And, and I, I shared that story on this podcast a, a few episodes back. And I know from feedback uh, from some of our listeners that that story really resonated with them. Tell us about what she offered you and what, and what you learned from it about how we ought to care for those who are going through tough times. Yes. You know, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. Like her book, um, her first book dropped on the same day that my second book, The Gravity of Joy, dropped one year ago, uh, March 9th. And so uh, it's incredible. Like we've been best friends since ninth grade. And um, <laughs> anybody who's done publishing work knows that not in a million years could we uh, have planned to have our books drop on the same day. Um, but it happened. And what's interesting is I'm telling that to you because we both tell the same story in our books, which is about how we came to each other after our dad died. Um, so when her dad died, I dropped everything and went to be with her. And when my dad died, she dropped everything to be with me. Oh, wow. And I, I think, didn't know so. that. I think, and it's just, we only told one story about each other and we had, we didn't huh. know it, but like, you know, but we told the same, I guess, you know, the same story, but about the other person. Wow. <laughs> um, and so also for like a sort of full circle moment, what's interesting is that a few weeks before our books dropped, she found this photo of us dancing with our dads at our friend's wedding. And I've been in many, many weddings. Um, <laughs> I am, uh, oh my goodness, um, a champion bridesmaid, but um, <laughs> I think like 17 or something. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Record. But um, my first wedding that I was ever in as, as a bridesmaid, our friend Emily was like, bring your dads with you to, to our wedding, to my wedding. It's really important to me that when I dance with my dad, that you all dance with yours. And, and at the, at the time we thought, oh, this is strange. Like, I mean, okay. But both of our dads said yes. And so the photographer captured this moment of Molly dancing with her dad and me dancing with mine. And it's the only picture we have of like the four of us that exist um, all at the same time hanging out, you know, and both of our dads were liars. Anyways, we, on the day that our books were released, she had this present mailed to me and it came on that day. Exactly. And it's a framed blown up picture of us dancing with our dads. Mm. And I think that's an extension of what she did for me the weekend that my dad died. Um, and it's this recognition of, so this was her attempt to keep my dad alive, to keep her dad alive on the days, you know, and she just wrote this beautiful note about how they might have felt about this day. And that was an ode to their love and to our love for them. And so one thing that I think we can do is similar to what you and your friends are doing with Rich Mullins, you know, is we can come together and we can write and celebrate like odes to our love for them and that what their love was like for us. I think that's a beautiful thing we can do in the midst of death or after death. Um, and that weekend, Molly, she, yeah, she just, she called my mom, I think it was, to find out where I was because she knew I was doing a lot of things like trying to gather stuff at my dad's house and um, you know, and obviously just like greeting. So, you know, so she was just like, called my mom and was like, found out where I was going to be and what time I was going to be there. And then she just comes and she just, she walks into the door and she, she first, when she knocked, I just like came and opened the door and I just hugged her immediately. And she cried, I cried. And then she was just like, I've got my computer and I'm going to work. Um, if you all need anything, like you can interrupt me at any time. I'm just going to be here. And any, you know, and then like throughout the weekend, she would stop every once in a while and ask us to tell us, you know, to talk about him, to share a story if we wanted to, to reflect on how we were feeling and then brought us food. And she was like, it's time to eat. <laughs> mm. um, and there's something about that. I mean, that's, that's what she did. She embraced and embodied witness and witness that whole weekend. And so I think when people, when we lose what this taught me is just, when, when someone loses someone that they love, what they need is all of that. They need you to just show up. They don't need empty sort of, let me know if you need anything. I mean, no one has the ability to let you know what they need when they're yeah, in the midst of that kind of grief. You know, um, They need you to show up and bring them fuzzy socks, bring them food, tell them when it's time to eat, 
They need you to clean their bathroom, do their laundry, you know, and a couple of weeks after like one of the greatest gifts you can give, if you know somebody who's lost someone recently is, you know, two weeks after the funeral, 10 days after the funeral offer to come clean out their fridge for them. Mm. And because a lot of people will have given them food and it will like likely, especially if they're a part of a church and, um, you know, and they'll need their fridge cleaned out. So very simple things like that, that just say to people, I see you and I'm here. That's it. That, that is it. That is it. It's, it's just, it's, it's being, that's the way you show that love. And, uh, and it isn't a bunch of words. It isn't explanations. It isn't fixing. I just, I love that. Well, my guest today is Angela Gurrell. We're talking about her book, The Gravity of Joy. And Angela, you, you talk about, you mentioned earlier about being at that, that significant program at Yale and the Center for Faith and Culture, um, the Good Life course that was called the, the Life Worth Living. In the book, you make a distinction between happiness and the good life. And I, I was really struck by that um, because I think most of us assume that they're the same, like happiness and the good life are the same. Talk, talk to us about what you learned about that difference. Yes, I think that the good life, when we think about the good life, oftentimes many of us think about a life that's filled with amazing conditions. Like it has the circumstances that we're really excited about. Um, And so I think happiness for many people is tied to this evaluation of like the conditions of our lives. Like we look at, we look around at the material conditions of our lives, like how much stuff we have, how much money we have. Um, how big our network is in a social media culture, like how big our, you know, how many followers we have and these sorts of things. And we think I'm happy with these things. I'm happy with how much I have. I'm happy with how much money I make. I'm happy with how meaningful my work is. I'm happy with how big my networks are. And I think that's a, you know, and that can be for some people, um, you know, something that happens regularly and for others, like not as regularly. And I think that's fine. I think it's okay to be happy at times. I'm not like, you know, a Debbie Downer when it comes to happiness, but I do think that joy is a far more profound emotion than happiness because joy is this recognition of and connection we feel to truth, meaning, beauty, goodness, and to one another. And we can recognize things like meaning and truth and feel connected to them, even in the midst of really difficult circumstances. And so that's the, the gift of joy. And I would say that a life, you know, so the good life, every vision of a good life has a sense of like how life should be led, how life should go and how life should feel. I think that a Christian vision of a good life is different than say an American vision of a good life in the sense in like all sorts of qualitative ways. I think that an American vision of the good life um, has really particular things to say about like life led well looks like hard work. It looks like um, making lots of money. It looks like life led well looks like being a leader of a big group of people Um, or any number of things that we could talk about. I think life going well looks like what I was just describing a few minutes, you know, our moments ago. And then life feeling right generally looks like life feeling happy. I think a Christian vision of a life worth living is qualitatively different. I think life led well looks like um, being a witness and with people in suffering. I don't know that that fits really well into the American dream. It's like a lot of, there's a lot of individualism that suggests that if people are suffering, they should figure it out and, you know, do better. Um, I think life led well from a Christian perspective looks like compassion and mercy, um, love, obviously, and honesty, vulnerability, um, and um, life going well, I think from a Christian perspective looks like being a part of a healing community. Um, and I could go in, you know, say a lot more about that, but, and then life feeling right or feeling well, I think it, it means it's a life of joy, which like I said, is, is different than a life of happiness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but the culture that we're living in is, is steeped in those narratives about what the good life is. And, um, I think there was even, I remember John Orberg talking about in Southern California, there was a magazine called the, the good life and it was all about 
um, uh, fine cuisine, you know, yachts, uh, yeah. and also about abs, which doesn't go with all the food. Oh, but right. Anyway, the contradiction. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we, we're sort of peddled that stuff and in, in, we're swimming in it. And it seems like, yeah, that's, that's the good life is this life that is filled with material things. And, and of course, as, and I think you mentioned this, there's nothing wrong with, with, with those things. And it's great when life goes well. And, you know, you've written a book and the book comes out and people say good things. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you're getting at, and what I've discovered really is it is, it is a life lived um, with a commitment to deeper values. And you mentioned some of those about compassion, kindness, um, beauty, goodness, and truth. And, and when I look at my life and I, I do the practice of examine a lot, never are those, those, those real points of joy. Are they, you know, some of those more material things. It's always the deeper things. It's a conversation I had with someone that was significant or um, how I felt after I went the second mile for someone. Uh, th- those are the things I think that make the life worth living. And, um, and, and well, here's a line I love from the book because uh, it, and it connects with these, this idea of fundamental values. You write, we do not often take time to name out loud our fundamental values, but this is important work because our values are deeply connected with what we do with our time and how we develop as people. When you feel that the way you live corresponds with, affirms, and embodies your goals and values, you often feel joy. I just thought that was a great line, Angela. Good job. Mm. Yeah, thank <laughs> but, you know, you. it's that it's that sense of I think uh, Eugene Peterson called that congruence, where yep. Yep. The, the life that I that I aspire to, those values, and and that I'm actually living into that, for me, that's real joy. Nothing can take that away. Absolutely, yeah. Because in any kind of circumstances, we can be those kind of people. I mean, it's actually possible, right, to live in such a way that we're aligned with our values, that there's harmony between our values and our actions and our beliefs. Um, and so, and like that can be, you know, had in the midst of, of difficult things and pain and suffering in our life and also in the midst of really amazing conditions. Um, but that no one can take that away from us. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, on this podcast, I talk a lot about the love of God uh, that's kind of been fundamental to my life and work. And, uh, and you write about that as well. And I, I love this section in the book where you, you, you write, when God's love is understood as the foundation of everything, we can look for God's love in all people, in every place, in each moment. The sense that God's love is identifiable, reachable, closer than my breath and ever present, has given me profound comfort and a continued awareness that meaning, truth, beauty, and goodness persist even and especially in sheer silence. Unpack that a little bit about the, how the love of God really is also connects to this idea of joy. Yeah, I think for me that um, there's another part of the book where I talk about joy as, and this is using drawing on the work of Adam Potke in his book, The Story of Joy. He says that joy is an illumination. And I add to his words saying, it's the ability to see beyond to the something more. And for me, as I realized and have, you know, continue to realize that God's love like permeates all things. And then even when I can't particularly like feel it in a palpable way, or I can't see it, like to trust that it is there, um, it, it makes life worth living. <laughs> um, and, and like, as I am postured ready for moments when that love becomes ever more real to me, um, that it makes it more possible that I'm going to recognize it when it's, when, you know, when there's a moment for clarity around it. Um, and I think we, we experience that like God's love in all different sorts of ways, like where, and then where, like where it can bring us joy, everything from the way that we experience nature to sitting in a circle with people without shame, without judgment, um, to, moments of realization when we, we sense, oh my goodness, um, what I'm doing is aligned with my values. What I'm doing has great meaning for me and my work does matter to this person or to that or whatever, you know, there's all these different sorts of ways that this can happen to us. But absolutely, I think that 
um, God's love just becomes this incredible opportunity to like, well, the realization of God's love is an opportunity for like becoming more postured and open to joy. Well said. Well said. I, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, I, I love that you, you talk about creating spaces for joy and you use this image of like ladders against fences. Um, you talk about the, how to create spaces for joy. Uh, how, how does that work for you? Yeah, I I think that for me, it was the women in prison who taught me most about this. I became a volunteer chaplain a year and a half after my dad died, after those four weeks of hell. And, and you know, as uh, the universe would have it, God would have it, luck would have it, something. I was assigned to the building with women on suicide watch. And it was there in this grimy room inside of a prison that I began to understand joy as a work of resistance against despair. And, and I began to understand the power of a community where like joy, we were given permission to feel all things, including joy. Um, so it was there that I began to really think about like, what does it mean to cultivate or create space for joy or cultivate a space of joy? So I think that in spaces, we can both remove obstacles to joy, like fear and anger, by allowing people to express those emotions in constructive ways. Likewise, we can also invite people to participate in what I call like gateways to joy in spaces, where we invite people to name their hopes, to lament with one another, to tell stories about times when someone has been good to them or when they've experienced the goodness of other people and the world, times that they've stood in the way of beauty and it's like ministered to them, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. or we can also invite them into truth telling, affirming what is good and true about one another, about the world. And so spaces become spaces for joy when we have permission to feel anything and everything openly and deeply in them when we have permission to belong, um, to, to say like, this is my story and this is where I'm coming from, when they are judgment-free zones, when they are shame-free zones, um, and when we say, hey, we, we want to, to know your questions in this place, we wanna know your stories, we wanna know your thoughts, like your voice matters. When you, when you create circles and spaces like these, like the ones I'm just, like the one I'm describing, then joy becomes possible because joy needs freedom. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that about truth too. Um, you write about a woman named, is it Naya or Nia who prayed a blessing over you? Am I saying the name right? Yeah. Nia. Yeah. Nia. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you write about a woman named Nia who prayed a blessing over you. And these are the words uh, you write. Uh, Nia finished the circle by reading them over me, these words. And these were the words, you're a child of God. You're beautiful. You're strong you're brave, you're smart, God has a purpose for your life. Boy, those are powerful thoughts from above. Those are big thoughts. How did that impact you when she prayed that over you? I, well, the thing is, is that, so I had, I think it's important to say, like I had written this liturgy um, as a way of inviting everyone into truth telling. For me, I knew that truth telling, affirming what was good um, and true about each one of us was an important practice in our circle like we just we would do it naturally often like all the women would um would just break out like when people would share something people would break like instantly just sort of jump at the chance to tell each other how wonderful they were and what they saw in one another and so i realized at one point um a few months into being a volunteer chaplain there that i was like oh my goodness you know the prison can take away many things from us but from you you know but it cannot take away your words And so we have so much power in like our words and in what we say to each other and to ourselves. And so let's use this power as much as possible. Um, And so I began to write liturgies of different kinds. And we began this regular practice of putting a chair in the center of the circle and then having every person in the, in the, in the room sit in the chair um, and have these words read to one to them, and then every person in, in the circle had an opportunity to read the words over someone else. And this was just such a powerful way of sharing with each other um, the truths about how God had created us and who we are. And so um, 
I guess it was just such a natural thing for me to include myself because I am also human. <laughs> and I also yeah. needed to hear a lot of the stuff that the women that we were, you know, that I was writing about. And so I included myself and on this particular night, um, and generally that's how it happened. Like I would start it and then I was always the last person to go and have the words read over me. Um, and so on this particular night, I was, if I can go back to that moment in my head, I, I think that it was just this realization that sometimes it's the most basic things that we need to hear. Like you're a child of God. You know, I just, I think it's easy for someone like me and I imagine like you (laughs) who have just like had too many degrees in theology, who've thought about this stuff for too long to forget what's at the heart of our faith. Like what are the roots of it, you know? And these were just on this night, I remember thinking like, it's so simple and yet so profound, but this is like, this is the basis of our faith. Like God has created each one of us. I mean, so this is here. I'll, I'll finish by saying this. Um, I've been meditating on Genesis one a lot lately because I've been a part of a Christian faith that is like, I feel like overly focused on Genesis two and three. Right. And so, yes, we are sinners according to Genesis two and three in the sense of like, yes, we, we can do wrong. Um, but we also are told in Genesis one that God made us good. Yes. So what does it mean to celebrate that more often? I don't, that's what, that's what I'm thinking about a lot right now. Oh, amen. Preach it. I talk about that a lot. Don't start in three, start in one. Yeah. And that's, let's, let's get to the, yeah. Cause that's, yeah. And we do often start there. <laughs> right. With yeah. you. Yeah. 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 And sometimes I'll just say, don't even start with Adam. Start with Jesus. He's humanity as it was intended. Oh, well, yeah, that's a I very, mean, you know, that's a Quaker Mennonite way of thinking. <laughs> it is. Yes. <laughs> we always it's, start with Jesus, both you and I. That's right. Yes. That's exactly. You can't go wrong. Well, I love, you know, you, you have these, these final words that you gave to the life worth living class and I'm going to read them and let you respond. Cause I, I, I'm sure you took some time to, to craft these kind of a benediction, but you, you said, I believe to your students then, may Jesus grant you vision to see yourself as a new creation. May he give you strength to take up new habits. May he grant you mercy and surround you with people who believe in you. May he provide you with all you need to flourish as a human being. May he help you to feel loved during both difficult and joyful moments. Wow. I love that. Uh, How did you come up with that? Where did did that come from? (laughs) Yeah, that was, you know, so we did the same, like I just, in my class, so this was actually at Baylor, um, I tell the story of like the life worth living class in the gravity of joy as if it was all the same class, just to not confuse readers. But I also, in order to honor my students and their experiences, it's actually um, like all my stories about life worth living throughout are um, like an integration of like all the classes that I've taught that are life worth living esque. (laughs) So, um, so, you know, so I'm not just drawing on one experience of teaching the class. It seems like I am in the book, but there's numerous ones. But so I taught a version of Life Worth Living at Baylor where it's called Jesus and the Meaning of Life, where I invited the students to go have a similar liturgy. And we like put a chair in the center and I read words over them and then they read the words over each other. And so I think in this instance, it was just... I was trying to, you know, I was praying through what I felt like they needed to hear. And I think this is where like the pastoral self in me like comes out is that I'm just asking God, okay, spirit, like what do these young people need to hear? Um, And then it just kind of flows. (laughs) Um, So that's, that's what happened there. Mm, So good. Yeah. I love that. I mean, benedictions, blessings, good words. I mean, my mentor, Dallas Willard, used to often say words are very powerful and we have this gift to give people these words that, that give life. And I can just imagine the, the students receiving those words and, um, and just filling them with joy. Yes. So yeah, wonderful. Well, listeners, I encourage you to get this book, The Gravity of Joy, Angela Williams Gorell. It is a, a, a wonderful book filled with wisdom about how to discover the possibility of joy. And Angela, thank you for becoming my friend for, uh, 
you nominated me for this workshop. I think we're going to get to be together. Yeah. Uh, at Yale, that the and so that's a, a blessing you've given me. And thanks for being on this podcast for uh, being on Things Above. Oh, well, thank you so much for also becoming my friend. And um, I'm looking forward to the work that we might do together in the future. Um, I think that this, you know, life worth living, Jesus and the meaning of life, where we have conversation with each other about really being able to answer, like, what is, what is the difference between, you know, one particular vision of the good life and another? And like, what is a Christian vision of true flourishing life? Um, what does it mean in light of the life and teachings of Jesus to lead our lives well, for life to go well, for life to feel well? Um, how do we respond to suffering? How do we respond to failure? You know, and so I'm excited that you and I are going to work together on um, creating more courses like this for the world. And thanks for everyone, uh, to everyone yeah. who's, who's working yeah. with us and giving us our time, um, given their time today. Um, yeah, it's been awesome to talk with you. It's been great. And I can't, I can't imagine there's, there's a, a more important task to do, particularly in academia where you and I run around. So um, yeah. it's going to be great. And uh, I know we're going to be working together. So Angela, thank you. Blessings on you and your work. You too. Thank you. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>